Today we're going to talk about what Jesus called the great commandment or the greatest commandment and how that relates to the Ten Commandments. You can find an account of this in Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40. Uh, you may want to have your Bibles out. Uh, you won't need it so much for this part, but once we get to the Ten Commandments, uh, it'll help you to have uh, Exodus 20 open in front of you, uh, because there are some differences uh, in the traditions as to how the Ten Commandments are numbered, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But right now, let's start with Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And it says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second one, which Deacon Aaron will deal with next week, is love your neighbor as yourself. Hopefully, uh, these are familiar words to all of us. Now, that's the short version of the story. The longer version of the story with more details you can find in Mark 12 verses 28 through 34, and that's unusual because Mark is almost always the uh, shorter account, but here he's the one that gives us uh, a little bit more. <clears throat> you can look at that uh, on your own later if you like. Uh, I'll talk about it a little uh, in a few minutes. Uh, and there's a related passage in Luke 10, 25 through 28, where it's a lawyer who comes up to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law, you tell me, how do you read it? And the lawyer is the one who responds with, well, I think you need to love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus tells him, that's a good answer. Uh, go and do it. And it says the lawyer, wishing to justify himself, says, Okay, but who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is a good reminder to us that even the greatest of the commandments cannot save us. We must have Jesus, the heavenly Samaritan, who takes pity on us and binds up our wounds. But, once we have received life, we are ready to hear our Lord, and we naturally seek the grace to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, in Matthew's story, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, because they have their own dispute on this subject, which is the great commandment of the law. And for some of them, it was the commandment of circumcision. For others, the commandment to keep the Sabbath. The others, and still others, the commandment to offer the sacrifices to God. Those were all popular opinions, and so whichever one of those Jesus chooses, 
he will disappoint the majority of the crowd, and they will turn away from him. This is the plan in the Pharisee's mind. <clears throat> and so they come and they ask him the question, and Jesus answers them plainly, as you noticed. He tells them, this is the great commandment, and this is the second one that I'll throw in for free. Uh, and that's unusual for Jesus to give them a straight answer instead of to respond with a parable. It's, or it's easy to imagine Jesus saying, didn't you listen to me when I was giving the Sermon on the Mount when I said, whoever breaks the least of these and so teaches others, he will be least in the kingdom? How then do you ask me which is the greatest commandment? But he answers them plainly, and in part I think it's because of where this story takes place in the Gospels. For both Matthew and Mark, they put it after Palm Sunday, after the triumphal entry. He's got less than a week to go to the cross, and so he's coming out more in the open, and he's just telling them plainly, this is what the truth is, uh, understand it or don't. Uh, and so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, and the English Standard Version really lets you down here, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, the word is not so colorless. It's on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is a vivid word. This is the same word that is used to describe Jesus hanging on a tree. And he's giving you this vivid picture of all the commandments of God. And at the top of them is love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can see all the other commandments in your mind kind of hanging off of these. And you realize if these two commandments fall down, if these two commandments are not kept, everything that hangs off them comes crashing down as well. That's the picture that he wants you to have. <clears throat> now in Mark's version, which as we said is a little lo longer, before Jesus gets to the part about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your heart and soul and mind, uh, in Matthew's version. Uh, but in Mark's version, he starts with the previous verse. He's going back to Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is where uh, that verse comes. But in Mark's version, Jesus starts back a verse where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God, in Mark's version, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is a strategic move on Jesus' part to include that uh, statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, because all the Pharisees and all the people uh, had been raised to know that this is a crucial part of the law. It's something that they would, uh, you know, uh, write down and bind it to themselves and uh, put it in uh, little mezuzahs on their doorsteps uh, and things like that. So they, they have to know when they hear him that he's right. This is the great commandment, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and Mark's version even records that. The scribe, or the lawyer, says to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he admits it, the law of sacrifice is not as important. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, this puts you in the kingdom of God. To know the law is not enough to put you in the kingdom of God. This lawyer, or this scribe as Mark calls him, needs to know his own failure, his powerlessness, to keep the very commands of which he approves. He needs to know his need of Jesus as a sacrifice and as righteousness. Then, looking to Jesus in faith, he will be brought into the kingdom and will be enabled to walk as a citizen of that kingdom. Never forget this when we talk about God's commands. The commands themselves do not give you the power to keep them. The strength is not in you. We can only safely handle and be encouraged by the law when we see the law brought to its fulfillment in Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. With that preparation, then, let's take a look at what it means to love the Lord our God with all those things that the command talks about. But what things are they? How are we to love the Lord our God? Well, it depends on which verse you consult, which uh, version. In Deuteronomy 6.5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But in the version from Matthew that we just read, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Mark. Here... In Mark, the English Standard Version lets you down. <laughs> it doesn't give a good translation. Uh, but what it says in Mark is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's four things. Deuteronomy 6.5 has three things. Matthew has Three things, one of which is a different thing, mind instead of strength. And now Mark gives us four things that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with. What's going on here? <clears throat> well, I think at least part of what's going on is that you need to understand that the exact words that are being used here don't really matter so much as the idea that you love the Lord your God with everything that you've got. It could be profitable to study the precise meanings of all those words, heart, soul, mind, strength, uh, whichever other ones uh, were thrown in there. Uh, but uh, you could also get bogged down and become legalistic about that and say, now that I understand those words, I've defined the boundaries of this commandment. This, and no more, is my duty to God. 
But that misses the big picture, doesn't it? There are no boundaries to this commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of everything you've got and everything you are forever and ever. Amen. That's why this, the commandment is throwing these different words at you to get you to that point. <clears throat> so we're not going to spend time going over each one of the words. Uh, we could, and it could be profitable. Uh, but I do want to say one thing at least. The command makes it clear that love is not just a matter of doing things, of outward obedience. Sometimes we reduce the command to love the Lord our God to here are the duties that you need to do, and when you do those things, you are showing love to the Lord your God. And the Pharisees were great at that kind of thing, at taking these commandments that are directed at the heart and saying, okay, here's how you do that, and when you do X, Y, and Z, you've done the commandment. But Heart, soul, mind, your inner self has to be involved in this love. It can't just be a matter of duty. And this scares us. Who can control the heart? But as soon as we ask that question, we know the answer, right? God. God can control our hearts. He can awaken us in our inner beings so that we both feel the feelings and emotions of love, and we do the deeds of love. We're looking for the whole package here. We don't have to try to cut this commandment down to size to make it manageable. We instead seek the Lord to expand our hearts and minds to the size of this commandment. What does it look like? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I could read scripture to you for hours that tells you what it looks like. Here's just one. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's not the words of someone who's just looking to know what his duty is. This man, David, has a passionate relationship of desire toward his God. He wants to know him. He wants to be with him. He aches when he is far away. That's the command. And for those of us, children of Adam, born in sin, without the grace of God, there's no approaching that kind of love for the Lord our God. So these two great commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, provide an organizing principle for the Ten Commandments. And here's where, as I said, you might want to get your Bible and follow along. Exodus 20. In fact, let me grab my Bible here and open it up uh, so I make sure I'm referring to the right verses and not 
confusing you. Yeah, Exodus 20, starting with verse uh, 1. God spoke all these words, saying, after that you get the Ten Commandments. So, the way we view the Ten Commandments is through the lens of these two great commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment covers the first four commandments in our numbering system, and I'll get to different numbering systems later, uh, and then love your neighbor as yourself, which Aaron will cover next week, uh, uh, covers the other uh, commandments after that. So up through the Sabbath command, whichever number that is, is covered by love the Lord your God, and after that the commandments are covered by love your neighbor as yourself. So those two commandments function as headings for two sections of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we generally refer to those two sections of the Ten Commandments as the two tables, because it says that God gave Moses two tables of the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, in actuality, uh, um, a historical probability here, is that both tables that God gave to Moses had all ten of the Ten Commandments written on them. See, back in the time of Moses, when a great king called a suzerain, if you're familiar with that term, when a great king made a treaty with a lesser king, he would have two copies of the treaty made. <clears throat> One for him to keep, and one to give to the lesser king. And so these two tables of the law, which are summarized in the Ten Commandments, these tables are Israel's copy and God's copy. And the two tables of the law are then stored in the Ark of the Covenant, the place where earth and heaven meet, so that symbolically uh, each side has easy access to their copy of the covenant so they can be reminded uh, of their position in this covenant. Uh, however, it's very common uh, to uh, use the term two tables of the law to refer to the first table containing the commandments to love the Lord your God and the second table to refer to uh, the commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that's fine. We'll continue to do that. Uh, and in case you're wondering, you should also understand that Scripture itself doesn't divide the Ten Commandments up under those two headings. It's an organizing principle that wise uh, men and women throughout uh, church history uh, have used to understand the Ten Commandments. Uh, commandments. And every Christian tradition of which I am aware uses this organizing principle. There's really no controversy about it. Uh, East and West use it. Catholic, Reformed, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational. They all just naturally divide the Ten Commandments into the ones about loving God and the ones about loving neighbor. So uh, we're safe uh, in making that same division, and I think uh, it would be... <laughs> uh, quite prideful of us uh, not to make the decision uh, because we'd be declaring the entire church uh, uh, across traditions and throughout time uh, to be incorrect on this point. Uh, so for other purposes you might make a different organization of the Ten Commandments but always come back uh, to this one. Love God then love your neighbor. So 
Now we get to the Ten Commandments themselves. And that's where the numbering problem starts. Which one is the first commandment? Should seem easy enough, but it really depends on who you ask. In the Jewish tradition, the first commandment is verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now you hear that and you say, hang on, that's not even a commandment so much as an observation. But the rabbi will reply, aha, and who told you they were all commandments? That's not what they are called in the Torah. In the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, they are called the Ten Words. And this is the first word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the rabbis write that they are called Ten Words in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, uh, not Ten Commandments. Uh, and so it's possible to look at that uh, first statement as the first word. And this is true not just in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's true in the Septuagint, uh, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, that was used in the time of Jesus and the Apostles. Uh, the Septuagint as well tells us that there are ten words. There are ten logoi. That's the plural form of a word you might recognize, logos. Jesus, the logos, the eternal word of God. So each of these ten things in this uh, account, is a logos, a word from God. And it's worth spending a couple of hours meditating on that fact that there are ten words here, and on the fact that Jesus, when he comes, is called the logos, the word from God. Both the Logos who was in the beginning and the final Logos in whom God has said everything that can be said to us. If I start unpacking the implications of this, we'll never get out of here. And in any event, these kinds of things are probably best discovered by your own contemplation. So seriously, when you have time, spend an hour or two just meditating on that. To Israel, God gave ten of these Logos things. But in these last days, he has given to us his final logos, which is greater than them all. So these ten things, they're called words in the Old Testament, the ten words. But the New Testament does refer to them as commandments. So we're on safe ground in referring to them as ten commandments. We don't have to change church tradition at that point. Uh, even if our uh, rabbi friend won't join us uh, in calling them that, uh, the rest of the church will. Uh, or the church will. Uh, so the rabbi says, the first word is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Most other traditions do one of two things with that statement. Uh, either they don't include it in the Ten Commandments at all, uh, or they bundle it in with the commandment that follows, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, okay, that's three things. One of them, they don't do anything. Another, they bundle it in with the verse that follows. Uh, and the third thing, uh, which I think is probably the most uh, usual in the Anglican uh, tradition, uh, 
and we're going to go with that one. The third thing is to look at that uh, not as a commandment at all, or part of a commandment, but as the historical prologue to the Ten Commandments. And this goes back again to those ancient uh, suzerainty treaties, the ancient treaties of the High King with the Lesser King, when the High King... Uh, gives a covenant to the lesser king uh, and says, this is how it's going to be between us. He starts by saying, this is who I am, and this is what I have done for you. And the implication is, and that's why when I give you this list of rules, you need to listen up, you need to obey. Uh, and that's the thing that's going on here. Jesus, or God is identifying himself in this historical prologue by name, I am the Lord, by his position with respect to them, your God, and by his historical deed, which gives him the right to impose this covenant, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Having given this historical prologue, God goes on to give what uh, Anglicans would call the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's verse 3, Exodus 23. <clears throat> so, according to Anglicans, according to the Orthodox, according to the Reformed churches, that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Roman Catholics and Lutherans say, no, that's only part of the first commandment. The first commandment continues in the next verse, verse 4, with the prohibition against idolatry. <clears throat> so you see what's happening there. We're saying first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment is don't make idols. Lutherans and Catholics are saying no, first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And specifically by that I mean don't make idols. And here our rabbi friend agrees with them in lumping those two commandments together. So for him, the first is that historical prologue. The second is, have no other gods before me and don't make idols. And so by the time the rabbi gets to the third commandment, he's back on track with us, the Anglicans, because uh, he added in one up front, but then he bunched two up together that we would separate uh, and ends up back on track. Uh, you might want to get out a paper and pencil and... Uh, Figure that out if that didn't make sense as it flew by, uh, or just let it fly by. Uh, the, the really important thing about this is not to nail down what each tradition says about the numbering of the Ten Commandments, but to realize that there is a difference in that numbering between traditions, and so that can cause some confusion. For the most part, nobody makes a big deal about it or says, you guys are numbering it all wrong. It's just we have our way of numbering it, and it's easier to stick to it. Uh, so, just realize that uh, the Catholics and Lutherans are going to be off by one because they've bundled what we call Commandment 1 and Commandment 2 into a single commandment. Now, uh, and that means uh, that when a Catholic uh, accuses you of breaking the uh, Fifth Commandment, uh, they're not uh, accusing you of not honoring your father and mother the way you might think. They're accusing you of murder. So it's a more serious thing. So uh, in any event, it helps for communication to know that uh, there's that uh, difference in the numbering. Now, 
alert listeners may notice, if Catholics and Lutherans bundle numbers 1 and 2 together, what we call 1 and 2, does that mean they're going to end up with only 9 commandments? No. They know they need 10. Because although Scripture doesn't number the commandments, it does tell us there are 10 of them. 10 words. So you got to get to 10 somehow. And so... Uh, the way they do that uh, is way at the un end under the uh, command uh, not to covet. They break that in two. Uh, there's more to be said about that, but I think I'm going to skip it. Uh, if, if you're interested in the minutiae of this, uh, you can ask about it uh, uh, on Monday night at 8 p.m. in our Zoom meeting, uh, or you can save it for Aaron. I mean, this is uh, his section anyway, so he's the one responsible to explain all this to you. There you go, Aaron. All right. <laughs> so, sticking with the Anglican system, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's easy enough to understand. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods instead of me, uh, or in my presence, uh, would be another way of putting that. Uh, so he's saying, the God who brought you out of Egypt is the only God you ought to serve, the only God you ought to have, the only God you ought to worship. And to us, that seems perhaps easy. We live in a more or less monotheistic culture. Uh, most people around us who worship a God at all worship one God. So we're not tempted to go out and find additional gods to worship. But in the time of Moses, that was the culture that surrounded Israel. It was ridiculous to worship just one god. Why limit yourself? There were many available gods with different specialties. Why not hedge your bets, get all the help you can? Now express like that, it sounds silly to us. But the point to us is, in our flesh, we are just as silly, if more abstract. In our flesh, in our doubt, we don't look to God alone for our help. We look to money. We look to our own intelligence. We look to our own strength. We look to our own ability to work hard and get things done. Whatever we look to and put our confidence in, that becomes an additional God and we become, in our flesh, violators of the first commandment. We have, uh, we look uh, as well, uh, should mention, to our government. And for that reason, we beat our breasts and gnash our teeth when the wrong people are elected. It's a horrible thing. Who will save us now, we think, even if we don't dare say. We have other gods before him. And that's what this commandment is about. And you can see how it relates to the greatest commandment. If we loved the Lord our God with our whole being, we would naturally have no other gods before him. It would be unthinkable. The second commandment in our Anglican Orthodox Reformed numbering is, in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Continuing in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In short form, it says, don't make idols, don't worship idols. Some people read this commandment where it says, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the earth. Uh, and they get the idea that uh, you shouldn't make an image of any created thing for any reason. No images at all. But this understanding of the second commandment doesn't hold up. Read through Exodus sometime. Look at the commands for building the tabernacle. God has his people making all sorts of images. Images of pomegranates, all the way up to images of angels, the, cherub, the winged cherubim whose wings touch over the top of the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. So clearly the problem is not with images of created things uh, in themselves. It's not even with images and places of worship, because those images go uh, in the tabernacle, uh, in the presence of God. The problem is with the use to which the images are put. When Israel makes images and bows down to those images as an act of worship, that's where the problem starts. <clears throat> so the second commandment is telling us do not make idols, do not make images for the purpose of worshiping them. Uh, now, if we bundle those two commandments together, the first and the second, as the Catholic and Lutheran tradition do, uh, then the commandment against idolatry seems to be focused on other gods. I don't want you to have any other gods besides me, God says. And specifically, I don't want you to make images of those gods and bow down and worship them. But when you separate those two commandments, uh, there's a nuance, I think, that emerges in the second commandment. The first commandment says, don't have other gods beside the true God. The second commandment says, don't make idols period. Don't make idols of other gods, but also don't make an idol that you call the Lord your God, Yahweh, and bow down and worship that. This is not how God seeks to be worshipped. And so broadly, you can see that the second commandment is a prohibition against worshipping God according to our own imagination and ideas, rather than according to the way that he has commanded in his word. Uh, that's the key to idolatry in its broadest form. Uh, so, uh, even if you haven't made a statue of God or of another God and bowed down to it, you can still be guilty of idolatry just by thinking that worship is a matter of what you decide to do and offer to God rather than of what God has called you to do and to offer to him. Uh, in any event, idolatry involves worshiping something that God has created rather than the creator. 
and it involves worshipping that which our own hands have made, rather than the one who made our hands. When we love the Lord our God with all of ourselves, we will not think of doing such a thing. So we move to the third commandment, verse 7. And again, remember, we're off from our Catholic and Lutheran brethren. Uh, they would call this the second commandment. Uh, but we're going with the Anglican Orthodox reform system. The third commandment, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And in general, many people hear that, and they reduce it to the idea, don't use God and Jesus as curse words. And that's fair enough. That's something that uh, we should avoid doing, uh, that would fall under the heading of this commandment of taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. But the commandment is really uh, a lot more uh, expansive than that. Another translation of it might be, don't lift the name of the Lord up to emptiness. Don't use the name of the Lord uh, in a way that doesn't mean anything. And you can see how using God and Jesus as curse words would fall right under that heading, but also an obvious application would be when you take a vow in the name of the Lord, be careful that you fulfill that vow. And when you think back to the vows that you have taken in your life, to vows at your baptism, if you were baptized uh, as an adult, to vows at your kids' baptisms, to vows uh, at confirmation, to vows at your wedding, even to vows when uh, you go on jury duty uh, or are called to the witness stand in a trial and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The third commandment says, don't say that and then go back on the vow. Uh, clearly, if we loved the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, we wouldn't invoke his name and then not do what, he's, what we've said we're going to do. And this uh, strikes a little bit of uh, legitimate fear into our hearts. Uh, for those of us who are married and taking, taken marriage vows, uh, have we always lived up to those vows? Uh, of course we have not. And we grieve over that. And we say, Lord, change my heart uh, to be more like you, to keep the vows that I have made in your name. It's not that we were wrong to make those vows in the name of God. It's that... Once we made them, and they were proper to make, we ought to keep them. So, the thing we're seeking here is not so much expressed in the, in the prayer, God, please help me to not use your name thoughtlessly. That's a fine prayer, but it can sound like you're just checking a box. God, let me get this commandment right, please. But what we really want is expressed in the prayer, God, please help me to grow in my love for you so much that I naturally use your name in the right way and naturally fulfill any promises that I make in your name. Because I love your name, and I don't want people to get the wrong idea about you. <clears throat> All right. The first table of the law concludes with 
the fourth commandment, third to Catholics and Lutherans, uh, found uh, in verse 8, 9, and 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There is so much more than we have time for here to discuss uh, in the just in the historical interpretation of this commandment uh, throughout the years uh, in the church. Uh, so we're not going to try to cover it all, uh, but I'm prepared to cover a lot more than we talk about here. So if you come to the Zoom discussion on Monday at 8 p.m., uh, I'll be happy to field any uh, particular questions uh, that you have. Uh, for now, let me try to summarize what I think is a common Anglican understanding uh, of this commandment uh, and what is, I think, at the core of our understanding at St. Aidan's. Uh, and Father Michael can feel free to correct me on that point. Um, but the Anglican understanding is different uh, from uh, what might be called the Reformed understanding, uh, especially the Reformed understanding as it arose in England uh, in the uh, 1500s, uh, or excuse me, in Scotland in the 1500s, in uh, England in the 1600s. The Reformed tradition takes a very hard line on this commandment. Essentially, the day of rest is changed from Saturday to Sunday, but it's still the Sabbath, and everything else about the commandment remains unaffected. So now it's Sunday instead of Saturday, but there's still this rigorous prohibition of all work, and really of all play, for the entire 24-hour period of Sunday. And you see that view represented in a positive way uh, in the movie Chariots of Fire. And when this view is held by people who understand and love the gospel, it can indeed have a very positive effect in the church. But, be warned, it can also lead to a lot of legalism, a lot of box-checking. Remember, the Pharisees just loved the Sabbath command because they could make up all these rules about what it meant to rest and how careful you had to be. Uh, uh, it can encourage something dangerous in your heart. So, be careful uh, if you pursue that understanding of the Fourth Commandment. Our focus at St. Aidan's I think, is not so much on a 24-hour period of inactivity. Rather, we focus on the New Testament teaching that when we gather together for worship on the first day of the week, we are brought up into God's own Sabbath rest. And that's the view that seems to be held forth in the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 4. Here's the story in a nutshell. In Genesis 2, when God rested on the seventh day at the end of creation, he didn't do so because he was tired. He did it. He rested as an announcement and an offer to Adam. Adam, if you work as I have just worked, 
you will enter into my rest and enjoy my presence forever. And as you know, Adam failed to take God up on that offer. But Jesus, the second Adam, did take him up on the offer, and he succeeded. Jesus has entered into God's own rest and sits at the right hand of God. We who belong to Christ will one day be brought into that rest forever. Meanwhile, when we gather for Sunday worship, by faith we ascend into heaven where Christ is and participate in that coming rest as we worship with the angels and the saints who have gone ahead. That is the fulfillment of the Sabbath promise. And when we, are, we do that, we are doing, in a New Testament context, what the fourth commandment calls us to do. We turn away from the fourth commandment, then, when we neglect the worship of God. This almost unimaginable privilege of being in that heavenly place in the presence of God has been extended to us, and we come to church when it seems convenient or when we don't have anything better to do? My brothers and sisters, this should not be. If we loved the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, would we not yearn like the psalmist to be in his presence? How could we look at something as silly as free tickets to a chief's game and say, oh, in that case, I'll miss the feast? Of course we wouldn't. How can we wake up on Sunday and think, I'm just not feeling it today? If you think that, then come to the only place where such disordered thinking can be addressed, into the presence of God, who will not rebuke but will change your heart. It's my hope, and I know it's Father Michael's hope as well, that this current pandemic will reawaken our longing to come into the courts of God in his Sabbath rest. May we learn to cry like the psalmist, when will I go and see my God? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.